Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Space, a podcast brought to you by the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. Hi, Katie. Welcome to The Sound of Space. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Katie Gwazdaki is a bit of an icon in the UTAT sphere. She was the first director of the Heron Mark II mission under the Space Systems Division and has charted a bunch of interesting journeys since then, which we'll get into. And when I first joined in fall of 2017, she was the one that responded to my email. So thank you for that. Oh, what a great introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you introduce yourself and then we can get into some other questions. Awesome. Yeah. So my name is Katie. I am a graduate from mechanical engineering uh, at U of T in 2018. I did my PY at a medical company, but my uh, passions really are in space. And so you know, since then, I've done a master's degree at the University of Toronto Space Flight Lab um, in space systems engineering. And now I'm working at Sinclair Interplanetary by Rocket Lab, um, where I'm doing awesome space stuff as a job, which is very cool. Um, I spent you know five years on UTET, so I'm very familiar with everything UTET from the ground up. So um, this is a really awesome opportunity, I think, to, to share some, some insights from my time and just to um, talk about some cool space stuff. Always good to do. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll kind of follow a little chronologically in terms of your journey. So beginning on space systems, kind of when you first became director, we'll start there. What led you to the point where you became director of space systems and then the Heron Mark II mission at that time and the, the kind of story behind that? Yeah, it was a, a pretty long journey, a winding journey for sure. But my passion for space has been know, since I was a kid. So for me, showing up literally like day two or whatever after Frosh Week, when clubs fair was around, I walked into the band center and I saw the rocket mounted on, you know, the side of the wall. And I was like, okay, I have to join this team. That's so cool. Um, And I knew honestly, from the beginning, when I enrolled in mechanical engineering that I, based on the syllabus, I wasn't really going to get what I wanted to learn at the get-go. Like I wanted to dive straight into aerospace engineering. Um, and I know I had to wait a little while to do that. So why not join a club? So rocketry, I did that for a year. Um, and that was a blast. It was, you know, every weekend up at Utias, learning things, doing all kinds of craziness. Um, and then I went down to Utah with Utah um, after that summer, which was a blast. Um, and just meeting interesting people who had the same, in- the same interests um, from all different parts of the university um, and engineering specifically, it was pretty cool. But in that time, after my first year, um, the director of UTAT decided to start the space systems division. And I said, oh, this is great. You know, we get an opportunity to be part of a CubeSat because I didn't really know what that was about. And um, there was only six of us at the time between all the subsystems. So we sort of divided into our skill sets. And I, with no skills, considering I had just finished first year, was thrown into the thermal subsystem. And I was by far the least knowledgeable, experienced, or anything. I was from literally ground zero, which was a great opportunity looking back on it, but I was terrified. You know, how everybody else didn't know what they were doing, but at least they were further along in school. So they had some kind of, you know, background. But for me, it was like, so now I have to learn thermal when I haven't taken any kind of heat transfer classes or anything learning um, to swim right yeah literally learning <laughs> to swim. um but it was yeah so that was my second year was um being the thermal lead trying to figure out thermal 
um, was really, really difficult. But once you sort of get the handle on thinking in thermal, it was, it was more interesting. But our, our project was always biology related. Like that was something we pitched to the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge and they seemed really interested. And we wanted to do something hard, you know, like CubeSats are hard anyway, but there's something about U of T that really makes you want to do something impossible. It's just sort of the mentality that you have in the school is, you know, I can do big things, which is, which is valid. Um, so that was what we decided to do. So after my second year and then after my third year, um, Heron Mark one, the design cycle completed, and then everybody took the summer off after we did our qualification testing at DFL in Ottawa. And then I became director. So that was sort of section two of the story, I guess. Gotcha. And in terms of specialization for mechanical engineering in particular, was that also something that attracted you in, in what sure. you could do in space? Yeah, I had always sort of had that um, mechanical inclination. Like I was only convinced really to do engineering when I did robotics in high school. Otherwise I was gonna do chemistry. Um, and so mechanical engineering came to mind when I was actually able to start building things. Like robotics was so hands-on, I love that. Um, so doing the design, the creativity involved in design really had me um, interested. So that was definitely something I wanted to work on. It was like, how do I design something that works in space physically? I think that's really interesting. Material selection, um, manufacturing, um, and, and certain design choices were definitely up my alley. Fantastic. Yeah, nothing replaces that kind of in-person assemble and make it work kind of experience. So following from when you became director, then you had this opportunity to kind of set the vision for the team and chart the future of the mission. So what was, what was your thinking at the time? What vision did you want to set and, and where did you see the team going? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, I, I wanted to create a team where everyone felt like they were valued um, for more than just their, you know, engineering skill set. And I had, you know, I had been part of teams where you were just sort of like a cog in the machine that was doing the work. You know, you get an assignment, you complete the assignment, check off the text, the, you know, the checklist and move on. Um, I wanted a team that was united by their passion for the subject, passionate to learn about the work they need to learn about and to follow it through. Um, that as well as a team that was committed to sustainability in terms of being a team that keeps going after years and years. Um, it's so easy with design teams in undergrad to sort of get, you know, three or four year cycles, people join in first year, they leave after fourth year, and then you have to start from scratch. And especially on the scale of a CubeSat, like you lose so much knowledge doing that. So my hope was to create a team that was more poised to have consistent knowledge transfer um, that would keep the team going. Um, and the levy was sort of part of that, but we can talk about that later. Um, so that was sort of the goal was just, having a team that cared about each other, but also got the job done. And at a practical level, putting that team together, was it pretty much just reaching out to people you knew, putting out applications and, and vetting for that culture that you were looking for? Uh, I wouldn't say it was as much vetting as it was laying down the ground rules. Like, and I think people bought into that pretty quickly. Like we had, you know, maybe open applications is the wrong word, but we had sort of come join our team days, you know, recruiting days, and I would lay down the ground rules as saying, look, this is what I want to do. And I think people were driven by that was, oh, cool. I get to be part of a team where our lead wants to know about me as a person, you know, and wants to learn about what makes me tick and how I work best. And as well as we're putting together this really interesting project. 
that's awesome. And as a leader, it's good when the vision you're trying to cast catches people and they really buy into it as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 And then of course, another practical element of the team was the levy and the initiative to get funding for a launch that is driven by students. So what was the motive or well, of course the motivation was to be able to launch, but what made you guys as a team think that this was possible to become aware of it and the steps to get there? Well, I can't take credit for the principle of the levy because we actually tried once before. So before I was director, we gave the levy a shot as a, a sort of first iteration of, of space systems. And just uh, for context, failed. the levy was uh, in terms of organizationally, how does, it, how does it take place? Right. So the levy is a, essentially like a, a referendum um, where we pitch to the student body and the student body says, yay, you can have this money or no, you can't, um, which in our case was sort of like between $2 and $5 per semester, you sort of choose the amount um, and you create a proposal to the student body. And then after a certain period of campaigning and, um, and signature collection, the student body votes on your proposition. Um, and so we had a whole period in my second year where we went for the levy um, and the student body said, actually, we didn't even get that far. We didn't even collect enough signatures. So we didn't get to the point of of voting. Um, so we really didn't have even the chance to, to see if the student body cared. Um, but it was a great opportunity, you know, like Blue Sky has, has had a levy for many years. So we knew it was possible. It's just, what does it take to get a student team um, into the, you know, the zeitgeist of the university where people are willing to vouch for us? And so that was really the big kicker was, you know, how can we make this levy A worthwhile for us in terms of money? Like how much do we need to ask for to make a significant dent in our team expenses? And what is like the, you know, marketing strategy for the whole campaign? Awesome. Yeah. So I can give you some sort of some detail on that, but um, the first chunk of that was, well, how much do we need? Well, in order to launch, you know, you need $400,000, maybe a little bit more than that. How often do you need it? Well, depends on how many satellites you want to launch. So it's sort of back calculated to something like, I think it was $5 a semester per student. If, correct me if I'm wrong. It was around $3 in the end. $3, yeah. Um, but enough that, you know, you had launch funding plus sustainable team development funding, you know, and that, that, was, that was what we had to figure out first was, well, if we're going to put in all this effort, let's make sure we have enough money. Mm -hmm. And ultimately putting that together and making it, part of what is known in the student body was a lot of groundwork. It was a lot of investing in the message and making sure that it was distributed. And at that point, it, it becomes a thing once you, once you put enough into it. Yeah, for sure. That process was insane. It was so challenging for everybody involved. We had all, it was me and all the leads of space systems that were committed every day for months to make this happen. Um, and so we had to collect 2,500 signatures from a distribution across the university. And so that meant that students who had never stepped foot in a class for geology would have to go there and stand in front of a class of 500 students and say, hey, I'm from a CubeSat team. Please sign our form. It would be really cool. Let me tell you about our team. So everybody's outside their comfort zone. And like I was on PEY at the time, so I had to change my schedule completely. I was working 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. so that I could go to two classes in the evening and vouch for UTAT. Everybody was making those sacrifices. 
And we did that for two months and we had this incredible Excel spreadsheet where we were tracking like what our potential yield was. So, you know, I went to this class today and there were this many students and I probably got this many signatures. And then we took off 10% off the top because of duplicates. We took off 10% because, you know, sometimes students sign with fake names or whatever. Um, and what did our total yield realistically look like? And so we were doing it actually quite methodically. And we did that for about two months, I think. Um, and then we had the campaign period after that. So once we had collected all our signatures, we had the campaign, which was essentially, you know, now that we have your support in terms of numbers, how can we convince students that otherwise hadn't heard of UTEP to just give us an extra thought on the referendum form? Um, because it was online, you know, students looking through all the other things they have to vote for, the referendums were at the end of the form. So we wanted them to see University of Toronto Aerospace team uh, funding a student launch campaign. Um, and we wanted them to just think a little bit more than immediately clicking no. Um, and so we knew we had engineering, you know, that would vote for us, but anybody else who wasn't necessarily aware of our, of our plan and our team might have said no if we hadn't have campaigned all across the university. We did movie nights, we did online campaigning, we did in-person stuff, we did photo shoots, we did put like bake sales, we did you name it, we were trying to get UTAT out there. We put posters up absolutely everywhere that students would recognize UTAT for a second on the referendum form. And it worked. You know, we got a majority buy-in, which was amazing. Like I I cried a lot. <laughs> I cried a lot that day. Um, and you know, it gives you some pride in that the student body is interested in in what you want to be doing. And I think it's important. That's fantastic. And yeah, that story is really an inspiring part of the legacy of space systems, I think, in terms of showing what can be done in student initiatives when you have something that you believe in that can be made into reality and then you put in the work and, and see it happen. It's great. Absolutely. And and the student team believing that, you know, you want to build a CubeSat and you actually have the money to do it. Like there's one, there's one less barrier to making this happen for you is that you know, finances are a little bit less constrained than they used to be. And that's helpful. You know, it means you can buy more of the components that you want. You don't have to build so much on your own. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the opportunity for learning there, because it's real, there's so much more investment and the stakes and you're going through the absolutely. actual steps of industry in undergrad already. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it makes you want to be more invested because as you said, it can happen. You know, your satellite can be launched. For sure. And then going from there, that leads kind of into the future of SFL, in your case, Spaceflight Labs. The, the organization has ties to UTIAS, which is the Institute for Aerospace Studies, but it's also its own aerospace organization in its own right. What's the relationship there in terms of the work that's done and, and how it flows? Yeah, so the Spaceflight Lab is a research lab. Um, it is a group of like employed university um, researchers that build satellites um, for a wide variety of customers. So it sort of straddles the line in both ways. Like it's within the university structure, which is great because they get a lot of grad students that can contribute on their missions, but also it does have independent, uh, an independent reputation as a really um, high performing um, organization. So it does have that flexibility, which is, which is pretty cool. So effectively SFL builds satellites and puts, and 
does it quickly and does it affordably um, for anybody who's looking for a microsat mission to be mounted in, in that sort of configuration. Right. And as far as the opportunities for masters or beyond undergrad, what drew SFL to the top of the list? Uh, well, you know, honestly, I only applied to SFL. I, you know, undergrad was challenging for me. I didn't want to go back to do a master's at a traditional academic format. So instead I decided, you know, I know SFL is a great place to go to learn hands-on spacecraft engineering. And that's what I wanted to do. And if I can, you know, put in a ton of work, come up with a degree and a great network and these awesome skills, I mean, why wouldn't I apply for that? There's not a lot of other places that you'll get that same package of experience. So I said, you know, honestly, SFL or I'll go to work, you know? Um, and it worked out in my case that SFL accepted me, which was great um, because I really did have all those opportunities, but it was so unique, the offering of the sort of mission-based work that becomes your thesis is what made it so enticing for me. Right. And since you're working on a project and doing research at the same time, how does the research come to be while it's also working toward completing a mission? Yeah, so it sort of depends on what missions are available. Um, so, you know, every time a new cohort of students comes in, the mission breakdown at SFL can be totally different. You can have, you know, four missions that are in the sort of beginning design phase. You can have four missions that are in the clean room being built in AIT. Um, and so depending on when you come in, it changes what projects you can be involved in. Um, and so it's a combination of both uh, resource allocation in terms of what you can contribute to, as well as your interests, what skills you want to develop, all of those sort of get put into what becomes your uh, thesis package. Like, what are you presenting at the end of the day after two years of work? Is it, you know, a combination of AI and T, which was, mine was both design and AI and T um, for the, the projects that I was working on. Gotcha. And for you, you were drawn very much by the, the practical experiential opportunity that SFL provided. Do you have any advice for people considering graduate studies where it's heavily research focused versus that kind of practical scale? I, I honestly can't provide advice on the research side um, just because I, I know I'm more sort of industry work oriented, like that, that, that tends to be the environment that I prefer. Um, but I would say, you know, if you wanted to have that work environment but come out with a degree like I mean asphalt's a great opportunity. I think it's really important that you get the exposure of being on a team, you know, like uh that that a work environment does provide. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that kind of work environment industry experience, as a student, when you're first exposed to that, there are some things that come to light in terms of the different ways engineering is practiced in academia versus in industry. What were the kind of revelations that you had when you first saw that difference and, and were part of the workforce? Well, at, at SFL, it's amazing because they have this framework in place. So, you know, a mission comes in and people know what to do next. Like it's, it's amazing to have the experience and the heritage at a place like that where they've put missions in space before, they know how to do it from sort of start to finish. Whereas as a student team, you're just literally Googling everything. You know, like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what components to buy. I have to get the background. 
So, you know, for me, I came into SFL with the background from a student team, but the practicality of, you know, how do you take a mission from a concept through requirements, through review, through design, through prototyping, through manufacturing and testing and acceptance and all of the things that sort of are in the process of satellite development, you know, having people that know what those steps look like makes it easier to, to learn. And it, under, it makes sense why all these steps are the way they are. Um, so it's a pretty safe environment that way in that you're really just learning the whole time and watching the process sort of unfold because the microspace approach is so fast. Like, you know, you can see missions go start to finish in your entire degree of two years. And, and so that's very cool to have that uh, well-rounded experience. Mm -hmm. And to see that rigor, the formalization of the kind of practices that you had done in, in Utah. Yes, lots of lots of documentation to rely on, lots of heritage, um, and all of that comes from experience. Like when you put as many satellites in space as as SFL has, you know, there's a reason that they have um, such a reputation, such a good reputation. Um, and just being a company is different than being a student team. You have whole all different kinds of trade offs, right? Your trade offs are different between schedule and cost and reliability, and you know, your the expectations are different on your mission, and so you make different choices. For sure. So SFL taught you, showed you a bunch of practical opportunities to kind of use that aerospace knowledge that you had, which led you to then further opportunities at Rocket Lab. So can you give a, a bit of an intro to Rocket Lab and the work that you're doing there? Yeah, so there's sort of two chapters to this story. So after I graduated from my undergrad, I worked at Sinclair Interplanetary for the summer as an intern. And so that was my first exposure to satellite component manufacturing at Sinclair Interplanetary, downtown Toronto. Um, and then after my master's at SFL, I, in that time, uh, Rocket Lab bought Sinclair Interplanetary. So um, that meant that when I got hired on to Sinclair Interplanetary by Rocket Lab um, in September of last year, so I've been working there for over a year, um, that I was both doing Sinclair Interplanetary work as well as being part of the Rocket Lab group. Um, so I've sort of seen both sides of that. Um, I also was in New Zealand for six months um, up until December of last year with Rocket Lab. So I've seen a little bit of both sides of the Rocket Lab organization structure as well as the Sinclair structure. Right. And in terms of the work they're doing, so Rocket Lab is a launch provider, kind of a direct competitor to SpaceX. And in that sphere where the launch industry is developing super rapidly these days. What is the experience on the ground as an engineer in terms of the company strategies and the culture shifts to be able to make those advances and come up with the, the new strategies in that market? Market Lab is awesome. Market Lab is such a fun place to work. It is for a number of reasons. One, Rocket Lab is now a public company. So not only are we doing things because we want to do them and because they're cool, but also because we need to make sure that you know, we are doing well for our investors. That reputation is really key for the public and for our investors. Um, Rocket Lab at the moment is aiming to create a vertically integrated company, which essentially means that we want to provide everything that it takes to put a payload or a satellite in orbit. So that means that all these acquisitions that Rocket Lab has been making, whether it's Sinclair, it's planetary systems, it's ASI, Solero, you know, it means that you know, you come to Rocket Lab with an idea to put a payload in space. 
And we go, great, we'll put it on our photon satellite bus. We'll put our reaction wheels from Sinclair on it. We will put solar panels on it from Solero. We'll attach it to the launch system with our separation system from planetary systems, the light band, for example. And then we'll put it in space with the electron rocket and we'll operate that satellite on orbit with ASI software. So that's really, really cool to have all of these different internal networks come together to put a mission in orbit. Um, and that's what Rocket Lab wants to do, is to continually create this vertical integration structure. Um, but the one of our most recent announcements is the Neutron mission. So Neutron is our up and coming heavy or medium lift rocket. Um, and so our goal is, is effectively to launch constellations. It's a reusable rocket and that's what the industry is demanding. So Neutron is, is up and coming. And those are of course a bunch of very nuanced vertical integrations that are occurring simultaneously in the company. How, are, how is that being made as seamless as possible? That is a really good question. Um, I think it's always going to be difficult because you are trying to become part of a larger organization where you have your own structure as a smaller company like Sinclair in the context of Rocket Lab, but you sort of gain from both sides. Like Rocket Lab has you know, things like tracking structures, inventory, um, production software that we maybe haven't been using. And so you get a lot of those benefits as well as Sinclair can still keep our small team efficiency in place. So I think it's a win-win in both cases for the company being acquired and Rocket Lab obviously gaining towards that vertical integration goal. And certainly on the matter of scale in terms of having the aims of, of Rocket Lab scale up, that's probably an enticing opportunity even for these teams that are getting acquired to participate in that larger goal of vertical integration because at the end of the day, you're probably all space nuts. Exactly, it's just fun. You know, the whole thing is fun. <laughs> Fantastic. And in terms of learning opportunities, of course, uh, for a, a career in aerospace, you're looking to develop and, and become more capable in these environments. What are your kind of learning and opportunity development goals at present? I've been really lucky um, in my time with Rocket Lab to be exposed to a number of different parts of the industry and the business. So I'm you know, doing work with Sinclair on production, but I'm of satellite components, but I'm also involved in the space system side of things. And I'm also involved in business development. So I'm getting a really well-rounded picture of what it takes on the, to create this successful company. Um, and I'm really enjoying that perspective, getting all different angles. Um, and so I'd like to sort of continue that um, as I go, because I mean, every day at Rocket Lab is 10 days somewhere else. Um, the pace is extraordinary. Fantastic. And the space sector, as kind of evidenced by Rocket Lab being busy and, and doing all these moves, is evolving rapidly. And there are all kinds of ways and all kinds of companies with which to get involved. Do you have advice for students looking to get involved without getting overwhelmed or swept up in these currents? Yeah, I'd say there's sort of two things to focus on. One is stay up to date with the industry because things happen so quickly. There's all ton, ton, tons of newsletters you can subscribe to just to get sort of daily or even weekly updates as to what's going on, uh, what products are up and coming. I think that's important. A, because it gives you a good perspective, but B, you know what options are out there for you. Um, the second thing I would say is really 
work on developing a couple key skills that you want and you want to be part of your profile. Um, so whether it's, you know, design, if you're interested in CAD, working on those things. And these are a lot of skills you can develop outside of, outside of school. Um, so make sure that you've got those skills on your radar. And I've certainly found for those that I've seen doing this well through undergrad, just having a, even if it's a, a modest portfolio of all the things that you've worked on, your personal contributions, they don't have to be on a website, but so long as they're accessible and you can pull them out at any time and you keep that updated, it removes this burden of trying to chart the future all in one go. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's really important to have things that you can talk to, specific experiences that you can talk to, even if they're failures. You know, All of that is still super important learning. And I agree, keeping a portfolio of things you've designed or projects you've been a part of or you know, team experiences that you've gone through, all of those contribute to making a more well-rounded individual. And speaking to those personal experiences, it's important to have those too, because if these companies, these initiatives in space are going to be successful, they're going to need communicative and empathetic engineers that have that same vision of contributing to a goal rather than technical proficiency at the cost of the humanity of the team. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is a question that we ask all of our interview guests. I think I know the answer, but given the opportunity, would you go to space? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, I've thought about it a lot growing up, um, even now. So definitely, you know, if the opportunity was available, definitely. I would say I am so fulfilled in the work that I'm doing and what I want to do. So it's not essential, but yeah, if the opportunity is there, no doubt. Fantastic. Well, Katie, it's been great having this conversation and, and sharing a bit about your journey and impact on UTAT. And yeah, looking forward to all the great things to come in Rocket Lab and the future. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore the sound of space to continue the conversation and let us know your thoughts on all things aerospace. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Sound of Space. <laughs>